connection to your country. This is your home. This is with all the shit that's going on. This is Beef for Bacchus. Hi, everybody. I I know I've been MIA for a long time. I know the podcast has been quiet for a long time. And I know the last episode, I had said that the season was returning in October. And here we are in May of 2022. To be honest, for a while, the podcast wasn't my priority. I was really trying to find my footing. And I'm not saying that I've found it. I don't think I have yet. But I know that I want to keep this going in whatever form it becomes and continues to be. And I got this part-time job at this wine shop in Southern California. So that was like another round of trying to readjust and figure out a new routine. Now, before I get into this episode in specific, I want to say that I would like to dedicate season three to my friend Zena Meded. Um, Zena passed away last week um, in Beirut. She was 39. She was vibrant. She was electric. Um, she wasn't done yet, you know? <laughs> April 2021. Her and I had been swapping news. I had just moved here. We were talking about plans. She was talking about uh, leaving the agency where she worked, which is where I met her. We used to work together. And so she was asking me, what am I planning on doing here in California? And I was saying, I don't know. I, I really want to build this thing that I've been working on throughout lockdown, even before lockdown. Like I, I want to see it through and I want, I want it to grow and I want to see how it will develop here in California, but to do that, I, I need help from my parents for now, and I'm still trying to figure it out, and I I don't like working for other people. I haven't figured out how to go back to doing that after being my own boss for a bit, and this is what she had to say. Thank you, Farah, and the great thing that you did, actually, and going back would be so hard for you, and you worked for your own. I'm not sure what you want to do. Are you not أكيد لأنه لما تعمل شيء بتحبيه كثير قليل أنه تطلعي مصاري إلا إذا كنت ما بعرف مين وتعملي ستارت أب وبتصيري مليونيرة مش حالتنا نحن سو إيه كثير بفهم أنه ما بدك ترجعي لورا الصراحة وأنا أنا بمحليك بقول لك مالي إذا هيك أند يو هاف سمثينغ أند يو بيليف إن إت أند يو ونت تراي تل دي أند خدي مصاري من أهلك مثل غيرك سو ذيس سيزون ذيس إز فور زينة Today, I am speaking with N.A. Mansour, but the mic is actually flipped this time. So this time, I'm the guest. N.A. is my friend that I met through the internet. She's also a fellow writer on culture through Foodways. I'll include a few of my favorite pieces by her in the show notes. Now, by profession, she is a historian. She has a PhD from Princeton. She's also the editor of the Hazane blog, which is a great resource for archival material. Um, definitely go check that out. And if you're a subscriber to the Bacchus membership, you probably received a couple of Hazane goodies in the December 2021 mailer. NA and I's friendship really developed over time. Um, I want to thank her first for giving me her time to do this and also the idea to even do it. Uh, I I feel like I'm always learning from her and then also learning about myself through her. She's become a confidant 
to me as far as, um, especially once I moved here, you know, she's been someone that I can lean on as far as trying to adapt to the, my new surroundings and the environment and trying to find my place in a sense. And as being someone who also writes for different publications and writes on food history and the intersection with culture, she's been a really great person to have as a soundboard, but also as someone who can work through these feelings when it comes to being a somewhat new name on the writing scene in the U.S. Uh, We're both navigating this world together, so it's been really nice to have somebody like that. And this episode is just you guys listening in on a typical conversation between her and I. And I think that's the best way for new listeners, but also old listeners to learn a bit more about me. Pan, you want to come in? She wants to come into the podcast studio. Yeah, come in. Okay, now we're both in the coat closet. Penny, you good? Okay, so Penny's here too. Um, This conversation happened back in November, if I'm not mistaken. So um, none of it is outdated. I still stand by everything I said in this, but a few things have changed since. Hanab is now a biannual publication. It's still a mini newspaper. It's doubled in size, so it's eight pages. And now it's more collaborative. So it's not just an essay by me with a few little things. There are more artists and talents and writers from the region that are featured in it. They're commissioned for original work. So it's becoming a lot more of a substantial publication. And I'm really proud of it. And I'm also really nervous because it's getting bigger and it's, it's you know, the bigger it gets, the, the more scary it is because the stakes are higher and the costs are higher and the expectations are higher. And then also... The more people involved, the more you have a responsibility to make sure that they're presented in the best light as well. So, so far, so good. I'm looking forward to where it's going to go. So Hanab is now published every June and December. I've also launched a shop where I sell clothing and there are stickers and cards and different kinds of paper goods. And then, of course, there's the occasional wine class, uh, whether it's online or in person. And that will also return gradually once I feel like I've got some space for that. So let's get into the episode. Here it is. Like how this kind of came up, which was I thought that you and I have all of these conversations that really illustrate why we do what we do, but also why specifically you do what you do for your podcast. Uh, The big why. Okay. Honestly, when I started, it wasn't, it wasn't this big, you know, um, mission behind it. It was just the natural progression of what I was already doing because of the, the class and doing the research to teach about Lebanese wine in Beirut. Um, I was working on a different podcast, so I knew the medium. Um, I knew how to edit. I was using very simple technology or like tools. Like I was recording with my phone and then editing on my laptop, sometimes recording under a blanket in my living room. Like it was not that high end as far as how I was doing it. And the why is just, there was a 
there was a missing piece in the equation for people who were visiting Lebanon and wanted to understand how did this industry come about? There was nowhere to go to hear it. And there was, you would have to kind of blend it together from going to all of these wineries. And most people can't do that and they don't have the time to do that. And so I was visiting these people and having these conversations and I felt like people needed to hear these actual conversations, not just have me repackage them into this really nice deck and then explain it to them. It would be great if they could hear it. And then it was also that it would reach more people if it were something that they could just listen to on their phone rather than needing to fly to Beirut or be in Beirut to attend a class that wasn't offered all the time. When I launched the podcast, it wasn't like, I'm going to change the world kind of thing. And it still isn't. But in the process of doing it, I started to see how important it was to add to what was happening in the wine world on an international scale, because I started to see how much it was lacking also on the international scene. Like it wasn't just in Lebanon that people didn't know the story or weren't talking about the overarching history of Lebanon, but also the region when it comes to wine history, but then also outside of the region, nobody was talking about it or very, very few. And the few that were, were not people from the region. So we didn't have representation. We didn't have people talking about it from a place of knowledge of the place. It was mostly people who had either visited or maybe lived in Lebanon for a few months or something like that, but mostly visiting. I felt like there weren't enough voices and there still isn't. You know, Michael Karam has been a writer about Lebanese wine for years, but he's also been the only one for a very long time as far as someone with a Lebanese background. And then if you look across the board, there really aren't that many people telling the stories, but also being critical about them or analyzing why certain things are the way they are, not just repackaging a really nice origin story about a winery and then presenting it to the world like an advertorial or being essentially like a mouthpiece for a winery. I really don't want to be that. Okay, so I want to call BS on something first because okay. I don't think that it was a little, I don't think it was this little thing that you were doing and I don't want to like, I completely believe you're recording it on your phone, not <laughs> to say that your editing isn't like very high quality. And I guess that's kind of the BS I'm trying to call is that you put a lot of intention and effort into what you do for background sake you and I have known each other for I'd say like two we met almost two years ago in person yeah. but we started mess. I started messaging you regularly almost two years to like this day if we were to scroll back through Instagram posts so I've been following your career your page your podcasts for a while and you put a lot of intentionality and effort into every little piece that you build with the equipment you have. And I think you also have, again, your expertise, which needs to be emphasized and underscored and emboldened. Like when you launched Bacchus, and even when you were on the other podcast, uh, Better Beirut, you know, you created the visual identity and you were very intentional about how you created all these little core elements that went with it, right? So I think that that's just the BS I want to call as your friend. <laughs> <laughs> but I think something else that sort of you, you've highlighted is that I think we're very much in this stage of, in both Arabic and English, when we talk about like our foods and our cultures of like, 
knowledge production, right? Like we want to like highlight, we want, we don't necessarily want to like show our asses. Whereas I think that we need more critical, I think we need to sort of enter a phase where we're more critical and we can grow from that. And I think for certain things that exist in Adobe, but I don't always think that, I think whenever we're publishing in English, especially digitally, we're always like very aware that other people are listening in. And I worry if that's sort of um, holding us back sometimes. And I think you've thought of this too. Yeah, I mean, you're when you're talking to an audience that doesn't know A to Z about a situation you're describing or criticizing or um, trying to deconstruct, you're always kind of worried of, am I helping feed the narrative that I'm actually trying to fight against? So how much is what I'm saying is being actually like digested the way I'm trying to present it? Or am I doing the exact opposite by trying to be like, well, this is the reality. And yeah, it's not great. It's not exotic. It's not beautiful. It's actually really messy and chaotic and complicated. Like, am I just validating the stereotypes that have come with the region by saying that? Or are they understanding that there's, there's more to the full picture? And yeah, we've, we've talked about that a lot as far as walking that tightrope of trying to document, but also trying to be more like demanding more from our own people, but also from other people who don't see us fully. Yeah. And I, it came up when you were talking earlier and I was thinking about it this morning too, before we got on this call, which was that like, I think collective action is really what we're aiming towards. And I think there's a tendency because of, of the word critical itself to think that critical means that you are being unkind. Mm -hmm. And I think that at the best times, like if you're not being outrightly mean, which is never really okay in certain circumstances where like the power dynamic doesn't allow for it, right? Like, like when you're punching down on someone who really is just trying to make a buck, right? Yeah. Um, that's unacceptable. But when you're being like, criticism at its best is like kind and it aims at like improving the people in your circle. I think that's, that's, that's really how I see kind of this movement to document, to foreground our cultures as, as kind of collective action. Yeah. I wonder if the podcast had come about at a different time, would it have still become what it is and would I still be writing the way that I do and like you're saying, more constructive criticism. I don't know if I would have gone down that route. So the podcast had started a week before the photo, before the October 17 uprising um, and protests. And so it was kind of in parallel to what was happening in the country and then the eventual collapse, explosion, et cetera. So it, it went exactly in parallel with what was happening on the ground, what was happening in the region. I think when I look back at the episodes, I can see that there's a difference that starts to happen because it it begins with like a lot of interviews and like really nice fluffy stories about who these people are, what they're doing, what their projects are. And then it shifts to a lot of like history and why is it the way this is and 
Like this season, I don't really want to do winery interviews. I've lost interest in pursuing that, although I still think that they're necessary because people need to be introduced to these producers to some extent. But I kind of want to dig deeper. And I'm not sure if that would have still happened if things were stable. And that's why I think I look at the podcast and I don't see it as what it became. Like that wasn't the plan when I first started. I was kind of like, let's just do this. And now it feels like it's a very important piece of documentation in the world of wine, but also like in public discourse when it comes to the region. I guess I think that me and you talk a lot about the body of work, right? Like the importance of being patient with yourself and recognizing that you're working towards a body of work, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to put everything in one article, which I think is also very tempting when you're like a first time writer or when you're just, I mean, I, I suffer from this definitely. I definitely, when I write a piece, I'm like, this is the last piece in this topic I'm ever going to write. Or, you know, God forbid, I just stop wanting to write for whatever reason. Or like that thing where they say you're only as good as your last piece or post I've or whatever. Never heard that before, but that's absolutely- <laughs> Now it's going to haunt you. <laughs> and I think that we need to like have that patience with ourselves and that like documentation is also important. And that doesn't mean that you're not being critical I don't know. I think if it, someone once told me that like to treasure the time you spend learning because it's in preparation for who you're going to become mm-hmm. and it's really important. And just because you're not like leading a movement today, which I don't think is the goal of any of our work. I think the goal of our work is collective, right? Like to me and you spend a lot of time talking about writing because we want to get better and because we want the quality of what's available, even if it's not coming from us to get better. And I think because there aren't a lot of us out there. (laughs) I mean, should we, should we just break it down for the listeners? Like how many people are writing about food and, and drink, drink broadly defined, like Shay included of the Arabic speaking world of Anatolia and Turkey of, I mean, I can name more Armenians working on food. They're doing a tremendous job. Um, I mean, we've talked about this where there's there's plenty of writers, but it's the the content that they're actually writing. It's either cookbooks or, you know, recipes and stuff like that, which are important. I'm not devaluing that, but there's that kind of writing. And then there's writing that is like promotional in a sense where it's talking about a restaurant or it's talking about a new food or ingredient or something like that. But there's a space missing in between those or around those where you're trying to break down either a tradition or a history or like we were saying earlier, critique something. And that gap hasn't been filled or if it has, it hasn't been filled by people from the actual culture. Yeah. I think that there's, you know, there's like one person I can think of who's doing that. That's Liana Arlanyan, who's Iranian Armenian. And, um, I think also, and we've had this conversation before too, which is basically that social media is also becoming a powerful tool, but the problem is monetizing it, right? Like you can't expect people to produce and to think creatively and to not get paid for it, but also to devote that time and energy when they have lives, they have kids, they have pets, they have parents they have to take care of, they have a job or school. It's just not sustainable. And if we do 
Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's also the value of that work, right? Like it's not being valued. If it's staying on social media and they're getting a few promotional gigs, like I feel like everyone I know who recipe develops on Instagram has probably been, has like had a promo deal maybe once or twice and has, and if, if they're, you know, Palestinian is, is the one example I'm thinking of. And I can't help but think that they're being thought of as a niche audience. Mm-hmm. Like they have a niche audience, thus they shouldn't necessarily reach out to them with their gigs. And this has been said before in like different influencer circles, right? Like fashion and things like that, that, you know, black influencers are less likely to get promo deals. It's, it's just another iteration of that problem. I mean, that's something that I struggle with a lot when I think about uh, the work I'm doing and how to monetize it and then how to sustain it. And how I wish I could be doing it full time and not be thinking about how is this eventually going to support my life. But then you you hit a wall when you come to integrity and wanting to keep that creative control over what you're putting out into the world. If you're stuck in this moment where you might want to sign a contract with a promoter or with a, a winery or whoever, and they want to tell you how to do things. Like, I understand how you have a lot of writers who ended up being brand ambassadors or being spokespeople for certain brands, because eventually, yeah, you have bills to pay, but it does affect your content. And I think that's where I get stuck is because I don't want to give up that editorial control over what I'm doing. And I don't want to play favorites and I don't want to be on anyone's payroll because I want to be able to comment on things freely. But then how do you do that? Well, I mean, it's obvious you monetize your cat and you have her basically do promo for you because I think a lot of people are drawn to your social media pages because of Penny. For sure. Penny's Insta celebrity status is incredible. I have people who like will text me, like friends who follow you and are like, including my brother, will be like, oh, did you see what Penny's doing today? (laughs) Anyway, I have lots of ideas on how to monetize Penny and I'm sure your dad does too. (laughs) gonna have a meeting next week yeah that um, was like you're already obsessed with her why don't you just start a pet store like a, a pet accessory store uh <laughs> you're I, like i agree <laughs> i agree i also think that you should just go for those big promo deals because i think she's adorable and i think you're also very good at coming up with i mean like to be fair and this also applies to your 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 backus page on instagram you're very good at coming up with like themes right and like things to do and ways to kind of get like you're very good at social media marketing in a nutshell, uh, inshallah, knock on wood. Like you do the whole series with Penny. Well, you did this for a while and I'm hoping you're bringing it back where, you know, Penny doesn't want you to leave, but you've done this on Bacchus with like how you highlight people who identify as women, as female, um, who are in the wine world. But I wanted to go back to something else you said, because when it comes to also producing material, I think another mentality that, I've encountered is that people expect you to produce things for free if they're from your your community, right? They're like, oh, little Muslaha, like it's for the general good. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you just do it for free? And I'm just like, I don't under like, okay, as a historian, putting on my little historian hunt, I don't understand what this comes from because public endowments have been a thing for hundreds of years and they fund all sorts of things. So where did this mentality come from that we should do things for free? And I like one day I will sit down and I will like look at the intricacies of where this break is. But 
I mean, I have friends who run all like different types of platforms and they don't, their teams, like if they're running like a website, a publishing site, really struggle with the idea that people should be paid for their work or even that they should be paid for their editorial labor. And I mean, as someone who runs a site, that's something I also struggle with as I'm constantly telling people, no, I have to pay you for your work. Can you just take this freaking check? And my workaround has been, if you're not gonna take the payment, you have to refer me to someone else who can write for me who needs the money more because I need the work to have value. Like I need people to understand that that's like a $200 piece. That's a this piece. If this piece has, I mean, I've recently started if people give me original illustrations or artwork, I'll pay for that too because I feel really bad just like putting their art on my site and being like, look how pretty it is. Like yeah. it's just, it doesn't like they put work and effort into that and there's an image rights kind of standard that needs to be held to. So I guess I want to go back to this because I think like Maslaha of like, oh, the general good, because I think that when we're writing and we're criticizing our own communities, oftentimes people are like, oh, but you're like bringing us down and it doesn't make us look good and people aren't going to buy our wine or people aren't going to buy our cheese or people aren't going to go to our restaurants or buy our cookbooks. Yeah, I've encountered this a lot where people ask for quote unquote help or some kind of support and money never comes into the conversation. And then it, it starts to feel awkward that you have to bring it up that like, you need to pay me for this. And even I struggle, like I feel uncomfortable asking, even though it's my right. And I should be asking because this is my expertise and I worked really hard to get to this point. So it shouldn't feel wrong. And yet somehow it does. There is some kind of guilt there. And I think they definitely probably sense that and try to use it to their advantage sometimes. I'm not saying everybody does it. There are organizations that don't have funding and need some kind of volunteer-based support or work. But there are some that I think they see that you're passionate about a certain topic or a certain place or, and then they want to, I don't know, it's, it's very insulting because it makes you feel like, is my work not considered work? Am I just, do you think that what I'm doing is not my job, is not like something that I'm actually trying to build into a career or is my career. Because by asking me to just help you out, you're making it sound like this is just a side thing, like a hobby, like it's something I do for fun. It's like a little blog. No, it's not. And I, I've had discussions about this with people across different industries. It's not just, you know, food and wine, but I wonder, is it a cultural thing? Is it is it just in our community that we feel this way because we need that support wherever we can get it? You know, because our community is like the underdog, so we're supposed to help each other no matter what. Like, is that where it comes from? Or does everybody experience this? Like, is it a business thing? I think when you're just starting out, this is like, I don't want to guilt anyone. And I don't think either of us wants to guilt anyone. And you, you said this, who is just starting out? When you're starting out a project, you're not going to get paid for your work. Everyone knows that when you're starting a company or when you're starting a, a startup, you're, you're not going to get paid for like a year. And that's what you kind of have to budget for in your own personal expenses. Um, and when you're starting small projects, what I'm always telling people is it does not, I think I say this to you all, it does not need to be perfect. Did I say good is the enemy of perfect? A perfect is the it enemy. Done is better than perfect. Yeah. And your podcast, like again, Shola, very well produced. And I think everything you do is very intricate and very well done. But for people starting out, like absolutely take the time you need to learn and put that product out so people can comment on it. You don't have to send it to a bunch of your friends. You can get comments on Twitter. 
it doesn't need, like you don't need to go through it and make it so, unless you have institutional backing that's paying you by the hour for this or paying you as a salary, absolutely not. It doesn't need to be beautiful. It doesn't need to be perfect. You can roll things out as you're going with it. And another thing I wanted to highlight is like, I think something you and I've also talked about is like, if we exist in a world where we want this sort of collective mentality, right? That we're all working towards a common goal and we're all gonna help each other get there. Then sometimes exchange of services and support is more than enough, right? Like sometimes brainstorming with someone or labor doesn't always need to be paid to be valued, but there needs to be some element of this thinking. And I guess, Coming out of this, I just wanted to ask you, I mean, this will be like the only straight up question I ask you, which is like, because I struggle with this, is how to be protective of your own time and energy. Because when you're doing your own projects like this, like a podcast, like mailers that you put out, very beautifully packaged mailers that like down to the little sticker, like that has your address and no, yeah, your address in the corner it's just all so immaculately planned. And how are you protecting your own time and energy? And I guess also like, how do you maintain a standard but also don't push yourself too far so that you're just obsessing over minutia? Uh, okay, great question because I don't have a great answer for it. I'm still learning this. For the longest time, I've been someone who does just cycles of burnout where I'll work and work and work and work and then I'll crash and then I'll have to like start back up again and figure out, okay, what can I cut out from this workload because this isn't sustainable. And I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. I think now that I also started a new part-time job, I'm once again having to relearn or reshuffle priorities as far as how much can I actually finish? How much can I actually commit to? You know, when I started the mailers, this was back in December of 2020. So at the time it was COVID. I was in Beirut. I didn't have as many subscribers. It was a much smaller operation. Uh, obviously, I wanted it to grow, but not to the point where I couldn't actually do those small details like you're saying. I don't want what I'm doing to grow to the point where it's so automated that I have so much distance from the final product. But with that comes a cap. Like at some point you cannot be that person if you have 300 subscribers, but I really enjoy these small things that I'm doing. Then I launched Anab, the newspaper back in June. So now I've done two issues, but now I have to work on the third one and now I have this new job. So like there's been a lot of life changes in the last two years as well. So trying to juggle what's happening around me whether it was in Beirut or here in California, and then also trying to build this platform. I don't want to call it an empire, but like this, <laughs> this, like this wine machine thing. I've had a lot of moments where you have to be like, you're the only one doing this. You're the only one creating the content, researching the content, designing the content, writing it, editing it. Like I'm a one woman machine. There's a lot of moments where you have to be like, can you actually do more of this? Can you actually do another project? Can you add another leg, another vertical or whatever? And I'm having another moment of that because now I'm like, okay, I have this new season of the podcast. I have this part-time job, uh, which actually takes up a lot of my time and energy, but it's also very helpful because I'm learning about a lot that I didn't have access to before. How do you do that? I think you have to have monthly check-ins, if not like bi-weekly. <laughs> 
of what am I doing now and how is it serving the long-term goal, which has been really hard to think about when you don't know what long-term is and when it feels like even the day-to-day was uncertain. It was really hard to think that way when I was in Beirut because every day was a surprise. Every day was difficult. And now that I'm here and I've been able to kind of see beyond the day in front of me, I think I got also over ambitious because I was like, ah, clarity. And now I want to do everything. And, you know, being in the States, you have a lot of tools to build things. You have that infrastructure to create. So it was very exciting, but it was also like, oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you can't do it all, all at once by yourself. Creators that start their own thing are also very protective over their baby, their business or their podcast or whatever it is. So it's hard to bring somebody in to help them because you've, you've groomed this thing for so long and to find someone who understands it and can kind of be your right arm or whatever, it's hard to find that, to find that synergy with people. So it's always, at least in my mind, I'm always like, no, let me just do it myself, but that can only go so far. But then how do you pay help? (laughs) It's, it's an endless loop of How do I keep this going and maintain that quality? And is this still serving me? Am I still happy with what I'm doing? Does this still serve a purpose beyond myself? Like there's, there's a lot of existential questions that come from, you know, just creating a podcast or writing a newspaper or whatever is okay. All this time and energy, is it translating? Is it, is it also getting to other people? Like that's why I love doing the mailers because I can see people receiving them and I know that it does something for them and that they're connecting with it. Yeah. I feel like when I think about creative partners in particular, I think it's really, really hard to find people who gel with you on a variety of, of frequencies, right? Like, so for writing in particular, I think we are very lucky that we started writing like freelance when Twitter was a thing because we were able to connect to other people on social media in general, right? Like, or the internet even. I mean, I've, I came to your Instagram page because someone picked up a blog piece of yours. That's kind of our origin story. And, oh, I keep forgetting. So the origin story is that <laughs> I wanted to get these posters in Beirut with these like old film posters. And I happened to find... I think it was, it was one of these sites had put up a, some piece from your blog. Banana Bissot. So Banana I, yeah, that's what it was. I remember it had like some sort of, it was also kind of animal or vegetal related, like <laughs> Bambi soapbox. And I started reading Bambi. Actually, you don't know this. I, after I like contacted you and I went and I got these film posters, which I still need to take pictures of to send to you. They're in my storage locker. They're beautiful. I absolutely love them have no idea how the like tube that I bought there to take them across the world with me. They were on like trains in Switzerland. They went to the UK. They were on like, it was ridiculous. Airplanes. I was like putting in the overhead locker. That was more expensive than the posters itself. I mean, he has posters that are, that he sells, that the man who sells them, which are now featured actually, they were one of the primary archives for a history of Arab graphic design by Bahia Shahab and Haitham Nawad, which I thought was really cool. Um, and then also they're the basis of a book, uh, Beirut at Night, is that it? That big coffee table? Uh, tonight, yeah. Oh, yeah. Up. Um, which I also wanted a copy of, but it weighs like 50 kilos. Yeah, uh, I left mine in Beirut. So anyway, that's how I found you. 
And I was doing research at like a bunch of different archives in, in Beirut at the time. And I would just load a bunch of your blog pieces when I had Wi-Fi, and I would read them when I was like scanning. Like I would be like, or waiting for like all my stuff to load or whatever to get my documents or I would just read them. Like I'd be in the AUB basement waiting for my photos to come out and I would read your blog. I think we also have like certain shared interests. So it kind of found you the old fashioned way, which is kind of like through a publication. And then I found mm. it on social media and then I started to message you weirdly enough. I feel like I come off really bad in the story. <laughs> No, no, it was all very gradual and normal. It wasn't creepy. I'm more self-conscious because I know that like pre-2016, which is the around the time I think that we connected initially about Abudi's collection, I feel like my blog was like very cringe. <laughs> it was kind of all over the place. I, just, I don't think I knew what I was writing about at the time, like between from when it started up until probably 20, probably around that time, 15, 16, I was kind of just like, brain dumping anything it only at that point started becoming much more about Lebanese culture and, and then like way more personal and I think I started to figure out how I write the reason I know how to write supposedly yeah. now is because of the blog it's not because of anything else like no I, absolutely and I remember telling you and I began messaging you more frequently around this time like this time two years ago um, it was right after the photo when I think a lot of stuff was going on and we were both feeling very emotional about just I mean, if you grew up in our part of the world, I think you're always very emotional and emotionally tied. I mean, your temperature is literally tied to whatever's happening. It, I mean, that's how it feels like for me. Like, I feel like my temperature just spikes whenever certain things happen. So I think and then we had dinner in Beirut that January. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling you that you should keep writing. I think you'd published a, like one piece by then or two pieces, like, on a non-website, non-Bacchus format? Uh, it might have been the wine zine at that point, like the first first time I published with them. I don't know okay. if it was out yet, though. It must have been the wine zine. It was 2019? Yeah, it, it, it was 2020. Yeah, because it was after the photo. And I actually remember seeing, when I was walking to go have dinner with you, again, another like little fun fact, a bunch of your Bacchus stickers were up because I walked to dinner. Like I walked through um, downtown and there was like, not Bacchus stickers, B is for Beirut stickers wherever. Like I saw yeah, a better Beirut, the poster. Beirut. You just put them up. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, I so. think it was it was 2020, right? Yeah, it was right oh before. Oh my god. I anyway, so trip down memory lane. I feel like again, we're like in this weird circle of people who all know each other and all talk to each other regularly and kind of exchange a lot of thoughts about writing. And I do think that as like dire as the situation kind of is there is a lot of room for growth. And I think it's just interesting to be part of this community that really encourages each other, but I'm completely lost on memory lane right now. So I kind of want to jump to something else that I've been meaning to ask you about, because I don't think people know what your quality, like you, your expertise is simply from just like, it's not like you're just, and I don't want to- A nerd. No, I don't, I was about to say that. I was about to say that, but I don't think that's not expertise. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's totally expertise. I think people mm. who- that's all what like people who are academics are like they don't really like they're just nerds they just have a piece of paper saying that they're a nerd you've studied wine formally as a subject and 
I'm always making massive assumptions. I don't know anything about everything I know about wine is through you. And <laughs> um, yeah, I can't remember. Someone asked me, to, my mom asked me the other day about like what an actual wine is because she saw a commercial and I was like, oh, so I guess my question, like what, and I'm going to call it your expertise. You don't have to call it that, but I'm going to call it that. And I, I'm right. So no, he was arguing there. You studied wine and I'm wondering to what extent, I want to talk about like barriers to entry too, mm-hmm. because I think there are a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your journey, just like formally into wine. It was purely because of uh, working for my dad. He, <laughs> he wanted to start a alcohol, like wine and spirits section in our new branch. Um, and this was the store opened late 2016. Um, so that summer he was telling like, that was the year that I was, I had left my job and am I going to join him? And then I went and did an internship in Spain with Tara Atrisi. And then I came back and he was like, Yalla, that was late 2015. So as of like December, 2015, I was working with my dad and he was outfitting a new branch to expand. And he said, yeah, I want to open an alcohol section and you can run it. And I'm like, I, I don't know anything about that. Like, I used to go to a bar and I would order red or white and I wouldn't understand why they tasted, why certain whites at certain places tasted different. Like I didn't understand anything. I was just like white wine. Now I know that it's grapes, it's producers, it's, you know, different blends. Now I understand that. But, and I told him like, I don't, I don't know enough. How am I going to run it? He's like in typical Arab dad fashion. He was like, you'll figure it out, whatever. And so when I was, trying to figure out what to buy and how to build the section and then also interacting with customers I realized I needed to know at least the basics to know what I was buying but also how to recommend to people so I took an intro class I I went to whatever wine event was happening in the country whether it was Vinifest which is like the big uh, I guess you could call it like a trade show but also open to the general public where a lot of wineries go and exhibit their wines. I went to an immersive weekend at uh, Chateau Bellevue. Like I was doing intro classes online and going to tastings. And and so I was trying to just learn wherever I could get it. So um, I would definitely credit online classes big time because there wasn't really anything available within Beirut to really learn that stuff. And so I kept doing those. And then I went to Napa early 2018 and I continued doing other certifications and going to taste things and trying to like, it was all very self-funded, self-initiated. And then the research that I did about Lebanon and its history was all purely independent. I would dig online as much as possible, which isn't like 100% the total story because you know we don't have a lot of uh, resources online, at least in English, fully you know, telling the story. I had to dig through old journalism, whether it was from Executive Magazine. So Nabila Rahal, she was the hospitality writer for Executive Magazine. She wrote a lot of great articles about the wine industry and her work was very helpful in understanding the journey of the last 10 years or so. And then reading Michael Cudham's old work, but also reading international publications and what they wrote about Lebanese wine, pretty much trying to grab at anything I could find and piece it together. Eventually, I turned it into a deck about the history of Lebanese wine. 
Now I'm not saying that that is like solid and that's never going to change. It's constantly updated. The more I learn things, the more I find new resources, which is kind of why it's such a long thing to unpack. It's a two hour class. And now it's even more complicated because half the class is contemporary, like up until today and the challenges we're facing today. And so now it doesn't really end on a high note. It used to, it used to be very happy, let's say that, oh, this industry is growing and there's so much potential and there's so much going on and look at all these amazing little producers. And now it ends with, this is what they're facing. This is a problem. This is a challenge, money, shortage. Like there's a huge smorgasbord of issues that they have to face. And now the industry is at risk. So it's not as happy of a class to give anymore, which is why I haven't been hosting it uh, since the summer. Because the last time I did, it was just very much a downer at the end. But yeah, I did certifications. I, I did as many things I had available to me, but they are very expensive. So as far as barriers to entry, that's one of them. Um, doing these certifications are really expensive, even if you do them online. They're even better in person, but they're more expensive in person. Uh, also just having access. So now that they're online, that's a huge help. There's way more people can actually take these classes before you'd have to travel to places that had these offerings, these classes, these tastings. But that's also a like a drawback of doing it online is you do these tastings alone. If you have access to the wines you need, access is definitely it. And I think also mentorship. So for <laughs> the first year I was doing this alone, I'm still kind of doing it alone in a sense. That's why I started interviewing different wineries and talking to people and trying to get their versions of the history and the story and incorporate that into the work I was doing and into the class I was giving and eventually turning it into a podcast. But it is hard to find people who can mentor you and help you understand things better and actually give you the full picture without them being a bit defensive or a bit scared of why are you asking all these questions? What's your angle? Why do you want to know all this? There's, there's a lot of fear and um, paranoia and I understand it because like, I, I know where that comes from. And I've seen that with my own father when it comes to business is whenever people come asking questions, they're like, why do you want to know all this? What, what, what are your intentions? And I experienced that a lot for the first year. You had people who were either very, very supportive and wanted to tell me whatever I wanted to know. And they were like that with anyone who would be willing to feature their winery somewhere or talk about their winery somewhere. They were, they were open to anyone, any kind of publicity or any kind of you know, interaction. And then you had the flip side. Who are you? Who do you work for? Where have you been? Where are you coming from? And not really opening up. And then I think the sweet spot in between is like being respectfully cautious. Okay, I'll talk to you, but who are you? Let's, let's get to know each other first. So I know that my baby will be safe in your arms and you're not out to get me. Like, I, I like that approach that like, I have to earn my way to your, you know, wine cave <laughs> of secrets. Like, I, I like that because I know that you also won't just talk to anyone and give anyone the same story. You trust me. And I think that's really important. And it's also very flattering for me because it feels like 
okay, you, you see me as worthy of your work as well. Cause that's kind of how I look at my own work. And that's how I look at like collaborations or when you want to do like a barter trade of content or like, oh, I can't pay you, but I will support you, blah, 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 blah. It's the same thing where like, you don't necessarily jump through hoops, but you feel like you've got my back and we're going to protect each other, but you're also going to call me on my shit, but not in a way that's going to hurt me. Kind of like how I'm not going to write a Yelp review about you. I'm going to DM you and tell you why this is a problem. You know, like, I'm not going to put you on blast. I'm going to tell you how we can make this better. Yeah, I often think about this also in terms of, like, critiquing the product and not the people. And that's why I think of, like, art criticism, too. Like, I'm never going to critique the artist because critiquing a single piece of work is very different than their entire body of work. You know, it's funny because I think the flip side of that is also of what you said about kind of working your way in and earning people's respect. I do think that that kind of labor cannot be replaced, right? You have to earn people's respect just because you're from this background or this group of people doesn't mean that you get an automatic pass. Mm-hmm. And I think, and especially when you're creating work that my hope for you, and I've said this to you before, is that your work can begin to encompass other communities as well, especially because you're, you're based in California now, especially because, I mean, I'm Palestinian. I know that there's a very strong and rich history of Palestinians producing different forms of drink. Like, I'm hoping that that kind of opens things up. And I think that, you know, when someone tells you from like the communities you're trying to highlight that this happened to me like yesterday and I was literally in tears all day. They're like, you've done such a good job. And I was like, oh my God, like it was your approval I was looking for all along. Like genuinely, it was her, this specific person's approval that I wanted because I respected them so much. And because getting access to that, those communities around them was really hard. And I felt like, okay, I've earned this respect and now I can keep going. And it was just, it's the best feeling in the world. And it's kind of this indirect form of mentorship where you kind of exist in the same spaces as these people Mm -hmm. and they're shaping you. You said a lot of things and I want to kind of cram them in. So the first I want to do is I want to highlight Arnab because I think Arnab, because you kind of described this process of like going through things and trying to understand from the history what's actually happened. Like mm-hmm. the fact that perhaps our peoples have always been producing these things, right? Like, and I think Arnab has been a really interesting way to go about this as a document in itself. And, you know, people can go and look it up and buy a copy or subscribe, uh, uh, become a patron. But I just want to point out that it's being archived by the UC Davis Wine Archive. Is that what it's called? That's going to be on the, the wine library. Yeah. There we go. The other thing I wanted, just because I think about this all the time, is that the end of your class is getting cynical. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Like when you're teaching your history of Lebanon classes, them being cynical. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we need to be cynical when we're talking about our food. And I don't think that's, I think it's part of a healthy diet of attitudes, right? Like you can consume pause, like positivity to a certain extent before it becomes toxic and the same with cynicism. And I think that in particular, me and you always talk about this, right? Like, and you've written about this, you know, how do we care about food and drink when the world is on fire? When our, when, I mean, specific to your field, right? Like I have a friend who works on a farm in France. They lost a ton of grapes this winter to fire, right? Mm-hmm. Wild, um, which is connected to climate change. But then also, and then of course the fires through North Africa, through Anatolia in 
Lebanon and Palestine itself and Palestine it's tied to colonialism, it's settler colonialism specifically in apartheid and bringing in foreign species in large amounts that catch fire, um, blah, 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 blah. But also of course, and we've been hearing about this for months this summer, you know, mango crops in Egypt going bad, loss of wheat, the fish in, in rivers in, in Iraq just dying because of the temperature off the up in the Pacific Ocean, shrimp being boiled alive in their shells in the water because it's risen to such temperature. And I can't help but think that, and I know you agree with me, <laughs> this is like one of these things where again, I know because we've had these conversations so many times and this was the purpose of this is kind of like everything you tell me on a personal basis is a really good framework for how you think and how to think of this podcast and how to think of your writing is that this is worth documenting because this is going to, this is shaping how we currently eat. It should change how we consume. It should change how we think about food as a larger system that's tied into ecologies and labor systems, but also that we need to document what's happening now before, this has been a theme of this conversation, is documenting, documenting, Mm -hmm. documenting before it fades away. And I think sometimes our societies, our cultures, especially especially ones that sort of are attempting to kind of go West or be modernized, there's this attempt to say, oh, we don't need the, the traditional crafts. And I think your work has really complicated that understanding of whether or not <laughs> wine is a traditional craft or whether or not these things should exist in their current form and that they're always being innovated. We just don't think of it as innovation because it's not Western. Yeah, and innovation isn't always because you wanted it. Sometimes you're, it's forced on you. There are situations like Lebanon right now, you know, shortage of bottles or shortage of cash. And then now some producers shifting to making boxed wine. Like it's not always a business choice. Sometimes it's a survival choice. But to go back, you were saying something about how like it's not a bad thing if it's cynical the class is ending in a on a downturn I don't think it's a bad thing I mean that's the reality that's what's happening it was more that it was like taking an emotional toll on me at the time like I couldn't talk about it without getting very upset at the end of the class and I was like I can't do this right now I need to be where I am as in I need to be mentally in California I can't keep throwing my mind over there and in order to tell people what was happening on the ground, I needed to be super plugged into what was happening in Lebanon. And it was really affecting me. Like throughout August, especially because it was the one year anniversary of the port explosion, I was so like deep in a hole about what was going on in the country and like a mix of guilt for not being there and a mix of why am I here? I still don't know what I'm doing here. Like there was a whole, just a big tangle of confusion. And at some point I was like, I, I can't keep, I can't keep my mind there if I'm here. I need to, I need to be where I am. Uh, and that's still hard to figure out how to do because my work is so rooted in the country and the region, but I'm on the other side of the planet. So I think it is going to change the format, but also like how I approach my work and where I, I feel like I can do the work from a point of honesty, but also practicality and being more healthy about it too. I'm hoping to do more classes but yeah I just need to um I need to update the deck again because things in Lebanon have changed again they're changing so fast that the the deck stays it's not accurate from month to month anymore so 
but yeah, it's um, constantly changing. It's not a static class, even if it's called History of Lebanese Wine. I think there's a whole pool of new people that can benefit from this class now that I'm here in the States. But yeah, it's, it's also just trying to be gentle with myself as far as being the person who delivers this class. And like you said, your temperature being so connected to what happens back home and it like really affecting you. It's not just, oh, let me tell you about this, you know, essay. Like, no, this is, this is my home. This is my family. This is my life. So that's our first episode of season three. Now you know a little bit more about Beef for Bacchus, about how it started, about where it's going, about where my head is at right now. If you want to stay in the loop on new developments, make sure to subscribe to the podcast, to the newsletter, uh, on Patreon if you're able. It's $5 a month. If you're already in there, thank you very much. If you're not and you can't, I understand. But I'm glad you're listening. Make sure to share it with friends. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe. You know the drill. I'll see you next month. This is Farah signing off for the Be For Backs podcast.